0: Hi, I'm Booker T. Jones, and you're listening to Life Minute TV.
1: Soul music luminary Booker T. Jones stopped by the Life Minute studios recently. The legendary artist was in town with students from the Stax Music Academy and its executive director, Pat Mitchell Worley, for a special concert at Lincoln Center. This after-school and summer music academy not only keeps the flame of Stack's Records alive with today's youth, it also provides professional mental wellness counseling to its families. First, I want to say uh, thank you so much for, for coming here into the studio with us and spending time with us today. You're very welcome. Can you tell us what brings you here to New York City?
2: Well, our students at the Stacks Music Academy, which are middle and high school students, they were invited to play Lincoln Center Summer Series. And when the show was, when they were putting the show together, it was just like, who, who can play with us? And, of course, every time the name Booker T. Jones comes up. This year, the Stacks Museum is celebrating its 20th anniversary. He kicked off our 20th anniversary with a performance in our Studio A in the museum. And then also some of the students from the Music Academy that had the pleasure of working with Mr. Jones in the past, some triplets got to play with him. For them, there's this one picture of this moment where you can see the joy on their face. This music that they've learned, that they've learned to be musicians, they've learned how to dissect music and what they're supposed to do with it. They've learned from the music of Mr. Jones. So to be able to have that moment on stage with him, we are recreating that at Lincoln Center for the Summer Series.
1: Is there other subjects that's touched on at the academy besides just strictly music? What else are those are the students learning there?
2: Well, the music academy is a creative youth development program, so it is a strenuous music education that the students get. It's an after school program. I'll, I'll focus on that, and also though it's not just about can they play. It's also about how do we nurture and shape young people into amazing adults. And I think that it speaks to also that Stax legacy. Stax wasn't just a label that put out music and the impact that it had on so many people, but also, its involvement as far as activism, its involvement in the community. When you look at entrepreneurship, when you look at minority and women being business owners, all of those things were part of the Stack story. So we've sort of incorporated all of that into the Music Academy. It's a pretty difficult program for students. Uh, they have to be dedicated and passionate, but also they have an opportunity to you know, pursue music to the next level and follow after the legends that they are reading and hearing from.
1: Is it selective? Do they have to be admitted into the academy or is there?
2: Students do audition to get into the program. If a student comes in and they're not prepared at the level that the rest of the students are at, we make suggestions on how they can move forward. We suggest some private teachers, other programs within the city. One of the best things about the Music Academy though is that there is a tuition, it's a lot less than what it would cost us to operate. Costs us about $10,000 a student. A music education that's good is, any kind of arts education is expensive, but for us, our students only pay a 10th of that, and we don't turn any students away for inability to pay. So if a young person wants to play, they want to learn music, then we've got a space for them. As many of our students say, these are my people and this is a safe space where I can be anything that I wanna be. So that's a pretty powerful thing to have young people feel that way. Can you
1: give us a brief rundown of maybe what selections you have picked out for the Summer Series event at
0: Lincoln Center?
2: Well, I'm going to let Mr. Jones answer that because they didn't let me see the set list, so it could be surprising. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, the set list will comprise of some Booker T and EMG's hits, probably Green Onions and uh, maybe Time is Tight and maybe Hip Hugger. So you, you may have heard those songs. I just wanna inject here, if I might, that it's a huge victory for everyone that the Stacks Academy has existed for 20 years. It's, it's It's such a victory for the community, and it's such a victory for the individual who wants to learn music. I say this because I reflect on myself at age 17, 16, and I had saved $900 because I wanted to know how to implement what I was hearing in my mind. How could I write this music down? I had no idea. So I saved $900 and paid for two semesters in advance at Indiana University. So that was fine, but it was 400 miles away. If I could have done that in Memphis, it would have just been so much, if I could have gotten that education for the money I had, and you say that you don't turn away students, it's just a—it's uh, a, such a wonderful thing. So I just want to say that in support of what you're doing there. It's been a personal creative victory for me to be able to get the music out that I have in my mind and for that to be happening on a, a large level, a large scale now at the Academy, it's just a wonderful thing that it's been there for that long.
2: Well, it's pretty exciting. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Can you tell us, so uh, we know how
1: the group, these kids are getting their start Can you give us a rundown of how you got your start in music?
0: Well, it was a similar to the Stax Academy. I had to audition, and oh. I learned of this audition two years before, so I started taking music theory at Booker Washington High School in 10th grade. I was the only person in the class. I was taking music, <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, uh, the, the, the chorus teacher, Mr. Pender, stayed after school to teach me music theory because I would have to pass a jury at Indiana. Uh, it's, about, it's a knowledge. How, how well do you know music? How well do you know the notes? How well do you know time? How well do you know cadence? How well do you know key signatures? So many of the aspects that had to be second nature. So I took, I had those classes for two years and they prepared me and I passed the jury at Indiana. same thing that, that's at Stax. So, uh, and then there's, there's the money. The, the $900 then was just, that must have represented, uh, fortunately I was working at Stax as a session player so I could make about $7 a day on sessions. And I saved that money plus my paper route money and eventually got enough. You know, those those were the obstacles. Mm -hmm.
1: You're a multi-instrumentalist as Mm -hmm. well, I understand, right? So uh, Mm -hmm. what's the whole scope of all the instruments you play? I know you're known for the organ, but what else do you play?
0: Oh, the sequence was oboe. Uh, my neighbor, his father was a band director and he was from Florida, and he, was, he would play the oboe at night. And that's just an arresting instrument. It's a, it's a sound that you never forget if someone <laughs> plays the oboe beautifully. And I wanted to learn to play that instrument. Well, it just so happened they had one oboe at Porter Junior High School in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, it was the only instrument left in the band room after everybody chose their instruments. So I picked it up and finally was able to teach myself to Enough strength in my jaws and in my embouchure here they call it and and play the oboe in the Porter's Junior High School band as a fourth grader. So and then I make, I switched to another reed instrument clarinet. My father bought Amro Music in downtown Memphis. My father uh, made payments to for me to play a B flat clarinet. And so then that led to saxophone. And I I played E flat uh, alto saxophone and B flat tenor saxophone and finally the big E flat baritone saxophone, which is the instrument that carried me through the little green curtain into the studio at Stax Records, E-flat baritone saxophone for Rufus Thomas. When I was in 10th grade, he was recording with his daughter Carla, and I played a saxophone on a song called Cause I Love You. And that was my opportunity to tell them, uh, I can do other things, I can play (laughs) piano, and uh, I would love to have a job here. Oh, and, and my wife is mentioning guitar. Yeah, I, I got a Sears Silvertone, a guitar. Sears was a big place to buy musical instruments in Memphis, so yeah, and and guitar. Uh, I had, my mother bought me a ukulele when I was a very young child, and I learned to play that. So I I was a multi instrumentalist, you know, at a young age, and uh, it was just a perfect fit for me to be there at those uh, satellite studios. I'm sorry, I have to call it that. That was the name of it then in 19. 19- 1959, 1960 was satellite records.
1: That was your foot in the door to stacks.
0: Got the foot in the door. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So once you got your foot in the door and you started working with the rest <laughs> of the MGs, yeah. being it a multiracial group mm-hmm. in the South mm-hmm. during the height of the Civil Rights Movement, mm-hmm. what was that experience like?
0: To be totally honest, the racial aspect was a second thought. It was not a primary concern somehow. I don't know how that happened in Memphis, Tennessee, but we were mostly interested in each other as musicians. And the people were chosen as musicians, not necessarily what their skin color was. And that was abnormal for, <laughs> for Memphis, Tennessee in, in 1959 and 1960, but it started to work because the music started to happen and people understood each other. It was an an anomaly, is that the right way to say that word? It was was something that you didn't find. And I think it was kept secret, uh, maybe purposely. Uh, I, I think the powers that be were not aware of actually what we were doing until we actually had some success.
2: The, the stack story was definitely an example of when everyone has a seat at the table, mm-hmm. that the, the outcome is amazing <laughs> because it's the contributions of all of these people who may not have had a chance to play together if that space didn't exist. I, I think it's so relevant in the world that we live in today is we talk about who should be at the table everyone should have space.
0: The nightclubs in Memphis I think had a history of people slipping in that didn't belong in the club. I think some of the the white musicians slipped into the blues clubs on Beale Street and heard and listened and and I think the same thing happened on the other side and so there was a musical community of people that knew each other that weren't rightly supposed to be associating with one another.
1: It was pretty unbelievable that that was to steal the title when your he head, the melting pot was, uh, mm-hmm.
0: exactly. <laughs> was exactly.
1: actually able to happen at, at that location at that time in the world and, you know, pretty amazing.
0: And there was a huge incentive for success at Satellite because the main motivator there was Estelle Axton, Mrs. Axton, and she had mortgaged her house to buy a tape machine for her brother. And she wanted us to make some hit records. <laughs> so she wanted to sell records in her, in her record shop so she could pay her husband back for, the, for all the money they borrowed to, to build this place. They uh, redone a huge old theater on Macklemore Avenue. So it, they, they were motivated to sell music in whatever genre would work. And I think they tried country music. Uh, I think you know, Jim and Estelle both ended up loving the blues. And we, of course, ended up inventing our own type of music out of this necessity
1: that leads me into my next question is that there was the stacks sound was such a distinct sound in the 60s soul music had different locations different cities had such distinct sounds was there Mm -hmm. do you feel there was a strong competitiveness between stacks and motown or
0: stacks and what james brown was doing or anything like that I didn't feel the competitiveness, I felt the admiration that Mrs. Axton and her her clerks held for Motown. They sold a lot of Motown records out of her shop. But Stax had an individuality. There were so many talented individuals in Memphis that I'm thinking of. Floyd Newman, who was a baritone sax player, and Willie Mitchell's brother, uh, who was a baritone sax. And that was one horn that people played, and I played it also that gave Memphis a different sound from the other records. Most of the Memphis records had that low, rich-sounding horn on the bottom of the horn, led by Floyd Newman and Gilbert Cables and Hank Crawford and people that played baritone sax. Hank went and played it for Ray Charles in New York, and he was from Booker, Washington. And So we had all these unique individuals that we could copy from and emanate. And it was just rich with talent, and the clubs on both sides of the fence. You know, we had Chips Moman, who was just a talented person as far as putting songs and music and people and singers together. And he was there as Stax's number one, I'll call him a foreman, because he was in the trenches. So it was just bound to happen on a unique scale. So no, there was not competition with Motown because we were so different. But we admired Motown.
1: Do you recall what your favorite music of that era was? Oh my goodness. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, I do. It was Quincy Jones and the and the band that he put together for Ray Charles. And I remember I was driving down McLemore Avenue and I heard uh, a song come on by uh, Quincy Jones' band and Ray Charles was playing organ on it. And it was called One Mint Julep. And I heard that oh what a, how, I fell in love with it. It sounded so good I thought if I could learn to play like that I would be so happy. That would, be, that, that would make my life. And, that, and of course the dream came true. But yes, it was Ray Charles and, and, and what they were doing in New York City and up in Seattle. And they also had, they had our man Hank Crawford on baritone sax. That, that was the music that sort of got me into maybe thinking maybe I could be a musician.
1: How about modern day? Let's fast forward to modern day music. Is there anything out there that you listen to right now that particularly grabs you and kind of thrills you?
0: Well, there's such a wealth of talent in the world now. Uh, I can't think of a particular instance, but there are so many people that are playing instruments and creating instruments and creating new genres and music has really blossomed. From the little 12 bar blues that we started with in Memphis. I can't think of a particular example, but I listen to a huge variety of music and it's very satisfying, very entertaining. Mm -hmm.
1: Reading your 2019 memoir, quickly scanning through it, and it's just a veritable who's who of American popular music that you've worked with in one capacity or another, as a session musician, as a producer or anything. Do you have a particularly fond memory of any of those people that you've worked with, something that really stands out?
0: I, know I ended up in, uh, <laughs> in Los Angeles in 1965 or 1966, I'm not sure. My sister got a call from Atlantic Records, wanted me to come and play with this guy named Bobby Darin. And we went out to the studio that was a new experience for me. It was not like Stacks at all. The music was on the organ, mm-hmm. and there was a little red light there in the studio, and the light came on. And I walked down and sat out, and one, two, one, two, three, four, you recorded. Oh my god, what page are we on? <laughs> that was the first Hollywood recording session that I was on, which was so unlike Memphis. It was so professional, and they had three hours. But it was an honor to be playing on that. Bobby Darren uh, album that morning, and I finally found my place in the song and caught up. And Hal Blaine was on drums, and uh, who was the bass? Uh, what was the name? Carol. Uh, yeah, Kay. Carol. Uh, that, I mean, consummate professionals, people that walked from one studio to the other all day, put the music up, and they played, made hits out of that. So that was. The Wrecking Crew. A memorable. <laughs> I, I'm sure I was sweating pretty hard there that morning. <laughs> and then I came out to walked to the, to, to the parking lot to my sister to pick me up and she told me, you're not coming back over here tonight because the riot had started and you, you won't be able to get in because of the police barracks. So I didn't have a hotel, didn't have a place to stay and the Blossoms were the background singers on that session. And I remember one of them took me in for the night and and that was, I had a couch to sleep on because Los Angeles was just a mess. So we walked out of the studio there was smoke in the, in, in, in the clouds. and. That, that was probably my most memorable first recording session outside Memphis.
1: With all the people that you've worked with, let's flip the other side of that coin, do you have a, a memory of what may have been your most challenging project working with somebody that was maybe not so easy to work with?
0: I think the biggest challenge I had in the business was, uh, I was living in Malibu, I had an, an apartment on the beach, second floor, and this guy, Came running down the beach and, and I said, it looks just like Willie Nelson. It was <laughs> Willie Nelson. He came in my gate, went in and he had rented the apartment downstairs. So we you know, naturally said hello and, and met. We had you know, people we knew in common and started jamming. And he said, why don't we play these songs in the studio instead of here out here on the deck. So then he asked me to produce the album and that was Nashville uh, 1976. We got some big help from Emmylou Harris and her husband Brian. They loaned us; they let us have their house in Hollywood. Her husband had a truck, a recording truck, with a beautiful uh, machine in it, and we, we we recorded what we thought was a good album. You we know, took the album to Columbia, CBS, in Nashville. They had a had a meeting, and they listened. But they put out about 500 copies. Fortunately and those sold, and they continued to put out more music. But that, that was, I, I, I was probably most politically out of place musically there.
1: And that, that was the Stardust
0: album? But Willie stood up for me, he fought for me. I was also
1: interested in finding out, you had kind of a, what, what some people have called kind of a comeback with the uh, Potato Hole a record and working with drive-by truckers.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you
1: tell me how that came about?
0: Andy Calkins' Baby. Andy wanted to get me back into recording music again. Uh, the business, had, I, had, I had fallen out of the business. I had started selling homes, selling real estate in San Fernando Valley to pay my bills. The music business had just, uh, I, I just couldn't get a job. And uh, Andy picked me up and introduced me to this band, the Drive-By Truckers, and I think it was Macon, Macon, Georgia. They liked my ideas and they brought food and and family to the studio, and made me feel at home. And we recorded Potato Hole. It was the first song I showed them that I had written. And of course, you know, that was a controversial title and everything, but they got right into it. And we're still, we're still close to this day. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: What do you do in your downtime when you're not creating and working with the, with the academy and doing all these other things? What do you do to relax, what do you? Do? I
0: read, I read everything.
1: We we talked about this earlier, and you have some fa- a couple favorite authors, and who yeah. who were they again? <laughs>
0: yeah. Who
1: who were your favorite authors again?
0: Uh, Anne Lamotte. when she wrote Bird by Bird, uh, that was so inspiring to me. I thought maybe that I, that was a book actually that inspired me to write my own book.
1: What's next for Booker T. Jones? What do you, what's what's next on the docket?
0: I think I've reached the point, I'm, I'm 78 years old, it's, it's, it's more of the same, hopefully. <laughs> I would love that if, if, if I could make that happen. I've, I've been so blessed and so fortunate in my life with music. If I could just continue to make music and play it, I'd be happy.
1: Well, this is, of course, Life Minute TV. So, uh, what we ask all of, the, of our uh, interviewees that come in here, what's your best life lesson that you can share
0: with us oh i love the the title of your show of your station here life minute and i think that encapsulates maybe what my answer would be to your question and that is my life lesson would be if you can maybe get out of the past get out of the future and make the most out of the very present moment Your hope is for the future and what what you think maybe the future might be and we don't really have a guarantee, we have the past, we can look at that, but is is it any good now? I'm not sure. But we have this moment right now that we can appreciate and and live to the fullest. And, and that's what I try to do. Yeah.
1: And Pat, what is coming up new for the Academy and the museum? I know it's the 20th anniversary, right? So. Do you have anything special other than um, this
2: plan? Yes, there's a lot happening for the rest of the year. We did we decided to celebrate for a full year in the museum. So we have a lot of activities that are exciting. We were talking about David Porter earlier. David Porter, songwriter, artist, producer, he's doing a QA and a session in uh, Studio A. And we're really excited about that. But we also have some artists that are coming in the studio and doing special performances. That'll happen during the course of the year. And then for the Music Academy, we start a new school year. So it's another year of helping students, helping young people. They have a lot of performances that happen during the year. Their Black History Month program that we do for the Academy has about 150,000 school kids around the country that watch it and participate with the study guide. And then at the end of the year, we'll have another group of young people that graduate and we'll be heading off to college and paying for college through music scholarships. So it's always moving forward. It's definitely always moving forward.
1: It was interesting to, to hear Stax as the label sort of making a, a little mini comeback itself like with Nathaniel Ratelief. And that record and that had gotten a lot of traction when when that his first record had come out and stuff. And
2: did that generate some new interest in people coming to the museum and coming to see the studio or it, it's amazing the people that come through the museum. We do a family day once a month and we thought that the family day would be like most museum family days where lots of kids come. But what we found is it's a multi-generational experience. People bring their grandkids and tell them how they remember this song and tell them stories. We have people who come for It's their date, you know, and we're gonna go to family day. It's interesting to see how the music translates across different generations and their stories of connection with the music. You know, that, that happens when artists come to town, they wanna come to the museum and, you know, just walk through. And Memphis is a music town. You know, you have a lot of options as far as music museums go, but we're very proud that we're the fourth driver of tourists to Memphis. So that, that speaks within itself that the impact that soul music has had and continues to have is, you know, it's deeply rooted in people's lives.
0: There's, there's energy at that location. Uh, it's good energy. And I'm seeing an example of it now in Pat. I remember Danny Parker and how she dreamt of having a school and an academy and a museum. And I I see it going from generation to generation now that I'm 78. And I I think people should go to the Stacks Museum and the Stacks Academy just for the energy. When I went, it was amazing. I could feel, I could feel just like it did when we were recording the great songs. It's still, it's It's amazing how their energy centers on the earth, and that's one. Maybe it's in the water, I don't know what it is, but it's there in Memphis.
2: Well, I think you guys planted, you planted the seed, and it was very deep, mm-hmm. and it has, it has grown and been nurtured by so many people over the mm-hmm. years that new generations are able to be nourished by it. It's just mm-hmm. as what you did in that space, it can't be downplayed or diminished on how important it is to this, you know, when we have a a sixth grader come in that wants to play guitar Mm -hmm. and she's determined and she's got a guitar strapped to Mm -hmm. her back and a little practice amp Mm -hmm. and she's like, I wanna play and this is where I wanna do it. And That's so
0: great to hear. And and when I played with the group that you're bringing here uh, Mm -hmm. tomorrow, I I could feel it in them. There were things I didn't have to say to them that they understood Mm -hmm. about music. And that was the first experience i never experienced that before. So,
2: you did a great job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this was when they started to celebrate their 20th, they had an opening that I went to. Yeah,
2: an open. It was a, a yeah, we invited a lot of people back and everything.
0: A jam, I guess it was, you could call it. Man, it was, it was great. It was great to be on stage with those kids. And they were doing things that I wanted them to do without being asked.
2: I'm very excited to see tomorrow.
0: <laughs> yeah, it'll be fun.
2: To see more of this interview, visit our
0: website, LifeMinute.tv. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, LifeMinute TV.